Welcome to the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better editor, following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years experience. My name is Leslie Watts, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Joining me shortly are four of my fellow certified StoryGrid editors, Jari Belander, Valerie Francis, Anne Holly, and Kim Kessler. Each week, we watch a movie from one of the 12 content genres and complete a global Foolscap worksheet, then discuss it using the six core questions. So just a special note for the podcast today is that we have some home renovations going on in the background. So you might hear a little bit of something and we'll try to minimize that as much as possible. Okay, so this week we are analyzing the 1976 movie Marathon Man, the novel on which it's based, and the screenplay were written by William Goldman. It was directed by John Schlesinger. Here's a synopsis adapted from Wikipedia. Thomas Babe Levy is a history PhD candidate and an avid runner researching the same field his father did. His father committed suicide after being investigated during the Joseph McCarthy era. Babe's brother, Henry, also known as Doc, poses as an oil company executive, but actually he's a government agent working for a secret agency headed by Peter Janeway. When the brother of a Nazi war criminal is killed in a traffic accident, Doc suspects that the criminal, Dr. Christian Sell, will come to New York to retrieve a valuable diamond collection. Doc comes to New York under the guise of a visit to Babe. Meanwhile, Babe and his new girlfriend, Elsa Appel, who claims to be from Switzerland, are mugged by two men dressed in suits. When Doc takes Babe and Elsa to lunch, he tricks Elsa into revealing that she's been lying to Babe about her background. Zell arrives in America, and Doc confronts him. In that meeting, Zell stabs Doc with a blade concealed in his sleeve. Doc makes it back to Babe's apartment and then dies. The police interrogate Babe until government agents, led by Janeway, arrive. Janeway asks Babe what Doc told him before he dies and tells Babe that his brother was a government agent. Babe insists that his brother hadn't told him anything, but Janeway is convinced that Doc wouldn't have struggled all the way to Babe's apartment without giving him some vital information. Babe is later abducted from his apartment by the two men who mugged him in the park, and Zell tortures him. During the torture, Zell repeatedly asks, is it safe? But Babe continues to deny any knowledge. Janeway, ostensibly, rescues Babe and explains that Zell is in America to sell off a large cache of diamonds that he'd taken from Jews killed at Auschwitz. Janeway presses Babe about Doc's dying words, but Babe still insists that he knows nothing. Feeling frustrated with Babe's lack of cooperation, Janeway reveals himself as a double agent and returns Babe to Zell. Zell tortures him again and drills into one of his healthy teeth. Babe escapes thanks to his training as a marathon runner. 
Babe phones Elsa, who agrees to meet him with a car. She takes him to a country home that Babe recognizes. He guesses that he's been set up, and he forces Elsa to reveal that the home had belonged to Sel's deceased brother. Janeway and Sel's men arrive, the aforementioned two guys in suits, but Babe takes Elsa hostage. Janeway kills Zell's men and offers to let Babe kill Zell in revenge for Doc's death if Janeway can have the diamonds. Babe agrees, but as he leaves, Janeway tries to shoot him and kills Elsa instead. Babe then shoots Janeway. Zell visits an appraiser in the Diamond District in Midtown Manhattan to determine the value of his diamond hoard. A shop assistant who is a Holocaust survivor recognizes Zell as a war criminal. After Zell leaves the shop, an elderly Jewish woman also recognizes him. As she tries to cross the street to get closer, the woman is hit by a taxi, causing a crowd to assemble to help her out. Amidst this confusion, the shop assistant appears again, directly confronting Zell, who kills the man with his hidden blade. Cell retrieves his diamonds, but as he attempts to leave, Babe forces him at gunpoint into Central Park and then to a pump house. Babe tells Cell he can keep as many diamonds as he can swallow. Zell initially refuses, so Babe begins throwing the diamonds into the water. Cell relents and swallows one diamond, but then refuses to cooperate further. Babe throws the rest of the diamonds down a flight of stairs and toward the water. Zell dives for them, but he stumbles and falls on his own knife. Babe heads out into Central Park and stops to throw his gun into the reservoir. Okay, so that is our synopsis, and we're going to begin our six core questions with what is the global genre? Anne, would you like to talk us through that? Sure, I'll try. This movie is listed as a thriller uh, with a sub-genre of political, so political thriller. And it is set up as a surviving Nazi villain uh, versus a Jewish protagonist. But it almost feels more like a crime story to me. Well, we can hash this out. Of course, thriller is a blend of horror, crime, and action. So I could say that the crime element rises to the top here for me. It feels the strongest. What drove me a little closer to crime rather than thriller is that they give a whole scene at the beginning where Babe tells his PhD professor that his doctoral thesis is about tyranny. And it seems like a huge clue to the genre because crime is more about tyranny to justice and thriller is more about life to death and damnation. So the really gross torture scenes, which take up a good deal of the middle build, make the Laurence Olivier character, Zell, a monster, so there's a sort of horror monster element there, more than a human being almost, and that, I suppose, helps catapult it into the thriller category. So we're listing this as a thriller, which is why we chose it, and I felt like it had stronger crime espionage elements, but you guys all make a pretty good case for thriller, so I'll let you, I'll let you talk about that. There's a minor obsession love story as a subgenre, but it's not very strong. In fact, it's pretty weak. And, of course, Babe goes through a, a worldview arc, I would 
it's either maturation or disillusionment. I kind of argue for disillusionment because I think he comes to doubt in the end the integrity of both his father and his brother. So I'm, I'm going to go with worldview uh, disillusionment for the fairly insubstantial internal genre. Okay, we'll go ahead and move on to the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff. And Valerie is going to cover that for us. Yeah, this film, um, if you think about the math that uh, Sean talks about in the story grid, you know, the 25, 50, 25, well, you can just take that and throw it out the window for this film. <laughs> but it was really interesting to watch. The, st- the story structure of this film I found really fascinating. And I really enjoyed the film because you've got to pay really close attention. There's so- There are so many layers and so many... Th- things moving around and one line of dialogue that can serve three or four different purposes. I had a chance to watch the film twice and then I went back and watched certain parts of it a third time. But I think it's a a story that you can watch over and over again and get something new from it every time. So because of that, I really enjoyed it. The biggest thing about this story is that the protagonist shifts. Our hero starts out as Doc. He's the, the protagonist of the story. But in the middle build, it shifts to his brother, Babe. So in the beginning, Hook, obviously Doc is the guy we're following for the global genre. And Babe's storyline is secondary. Babe is really dealing with internal issues. And there's not a lot going on in his world externally. And the inciting incident for the global story is that Sal's brother dies in the car crash. And that destroyed one of two keys that gets them into the safety deposit box where all the diamonds are. The progressive complication, I think, is that Doc believes he's losing his edge. And he even says to Babe, I'm only the best because people think I'm the best, but I'm past it now and I know it. Sooner or later, it's going to become common knowledge. The turning point, of course, is when Cell arrives in New York and has Babe mugged because that is a violation of the, uh, you know, even criminals have a code of conduct and that violates their code. You don't do that. They don't involve family. So that leads to a crisis question for Doc. Does he go and confront Zell about attacking Babe? Because remember, Doc has been working for Zell. They, Janeway says at some point in the film, when he explains what they do, we're providers. And we provide to whomever needs the service. So in the beginning hook, we've got Doc who's actually transporting the diamonds to the guy in the antique shop. I won't say he's been a loyal employee. I don't think that's true, but he has certainly been able, Zell has been able to trust him to do the job that he's hired to do. And now that trust is called into question. So does Doc confront Zell about attacking Babe or not? Doc does confront Zell. And the resolution, of course, is that Zell stabs Doc. This leads right into the middle build which is when Doc shows up at Babe's apartment and dies in the apartment. Now, that's actually halfway through the film. So I'm arguing that the first hour is all middle build because it's called Marathon Man. Babe is the Marathon Man. It's not called Doc and the Marathon Man. So halfway through, I think, is when the middle build actually starts. And the inciting incident was when Doc dies in his brother's apartment. The progressive complication is that Babe has no idea what is it safe means. The turning point is when Babe discovers that Elsa, the woman he is smitten with, is actually working for Cell. His crisis question becomes, will he kill Elsa, Janeway, and the others, or will he rise above it? The climax is that Janeway tells Babe where to find Zell, and Babe walks away. However, in the resolution, Janeway whips out his gun and is going to shoot Babe as he's walking away, 
Elsa warns Babe, and I mean, this whole thing takes 30 seconds of screen time, okay? So Elsa warns Babe that Janeway's going to kill him. Babe turns and shoots Janeway. And this is the only person he actually kills in the whole film, and it's in self-defense. The ending payoff, I believe, comes with only 12 minutes left to the film. And this is of the global story. There are other storylines going through this, but I'm just looking at the, the global story. So I'm arguing that the, the ending payoff of the global story begins with only 12 minutes left to the film. And it's when Babe confronts Zell outside the bank. So Zell has gotten the diamonds and he's already figured out what they cost and all that kind of stuff. And the progressive complication is that Babe tells Zell that he can keep as many of the diamonds as he can swallow. That leads to progressively builds to a turning point where Zell swallows one diamond, but then refuses to swallow any more. The crisis question, again, for Babe is, is he going to kill this guy and revenge his father's and brother's deaths or not? So it's similar to the crisis question in the, in the middle build. The climax is that Babe throws the briefcase of diamonds over the stairs, and in the resolution, in his effort to save the diamonds, Zell falls down the stairs, stabs himself with his own hidden blade that's up his sleeve, and dies. So the big things here that I've already mentioned, the protagonist shifts after the uh, beginning hook. And we start out with Babe being a guy who's following an internal journey. All of a sudden, he's thrust into the external genre of the story. And the internal genre seems to kind of, I won't say die away, but it, it certainly goes way to the background. I know that we, we talked a little bit before we started to record about what each of us thought about the film and whether we enjoyed it or not. And I wonder if having this protagonist totally shift halfway through the film impacts certainly a modern audience's view of the story. Speaking of shifting and, and that kind of thing, we've noted with other films that when there are changes in key personnel, that that seems to coincide with stories not quite working and that Dustin Hoffman is said to have not liked William Goldman's ending and he convinced Schlesinger to change it, which did happen. There is a difference between Goldman's novel and the story. And so I wonder how much of the things that aren't really working is impacted by the ending changing. I mean, we know other things that are kind of a little interesting, shall we say, in other <laughs> parts of the film. But I wonder how much of that, the key personnel change made a difference here. To me, what this highlights is that when you start to go down a particular path for a story, you got to stay on that path. You know, in your first draft, it can look like whatever it looks like. But once you pick a genre, you got to commit to it. And you got to follow that all the way through. Because if you start to monkey around with things halfway through, the story might technically work, but it may not be as satisfying. Like Jane Got a Gun, when we looked at that earlier. And uh, there, there have been other films as well. Yeah, Jack the Giant Slayer, I think, is another example yeah, where there were example. changes. Yeah, so there were changes in personnel in Alien as well. But I think there, where you have Jari's favorite director, who <laughs> has a very strong sense of story himself, that he can kind of steer it. But I wonder if sometimes personnel you know, has an impact on the story that results. Yeah, I think so. I mean, what else did William Goldman write? I'm I'm not as familiar. Well, The Princess with... Bride, for starters. I Butch mean, Cassidy and the wow. Butch Cassidy. Wow. Butch Cassidy. I mean... Don't be Don't be arguing with William Goldman. <laughs> hey, <laughs> you don't always hit home runs, okay? I didn't think this worked that well. This 
at least had a, a really good global arc. I mean, it was pretty clear kind of what's going on, but it's just the rest of the subplots and the way things turned and the setups. I just wasn't that thrilled. And, and, and I really didn't like the ending either. I think Babe got a... He got off easy. He was he tortured for half the movie, Jari. I don't think that was Yeah, easy. no, but I mean... It's not really his fault. I know, but... Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, we, we, had, we had talked about comparing this to Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, right? Both films are hard to get into. You got to pay attention. You can't be like, you know, texting on your phone or doing whatever. I mean, it's really, like, tough, right? The difference between Marathon Man and Tinker Tailor, at least for me, is that I got sucked into Tinker Tailor pretty quick. It was complicated, but... To me, from an espionage point of view, really made sense. But this one, I just... I Didn't quite work for you. I just didn't feel it. And when I was looking through the obligatory scenes of a thriller, which which is the next thing we're going to talk about, it was interesting because Anne and I have a disagreement on what's the, the inciting crime indicative of a master villain. I mean, for me, it's like the huge crime took place when the White Angel stole all the diamonds from the Jewish people at Auschwitz 30 years prior to this. There's no master villain, massive crime that happens during this thing other than him trying to get his diamonds back. But it's not even his diamonds. I mean, he stole them. And so, which is one of the obligatory scenes, is this an inciting crime indicative of a master villain, and then there must be victims. To me, that's his original crime of stealing all the diamonds. But that doesn't happen on screen which that has to happen on the page and on the screen. And I'm sure in the mm-hmm. book, there was probably a huge amount of words put to that. Because, I mean, I, I got to believe that there was more background on the White Angel and what happened with the brothers and, you know, them escaping and whatnot. But I know that Anne does disagree with me. So, Anne, why don't you jump in? That's well, I don't, I don't disagree with you because it is an inciting crime that's called for in a thriller. And yeah, we don't see an inciting crime on the screen. And to me, putting an in, basically the inciting incident of the global story 30 years in the past and never showing it seems kind of cheesy and difficult. So I just assume that the inciting incident of the story, which isn't really a crime, it's just the coincidental random car crash that kills this guy's brother and sets off the chain of events that brings him to New York, taking a large risk to recover his diamonds. But that was part of why this movie didn't feel like it quite worked for me. Yeah, it would have set it up better for me if they actually would have shown the White Angel guy doing what he did back during World War II. Okay, yeah, I just... I wanted to jump in and say it really draws on the mystery aspect, I think. We don't really know who this guy is, and the way that they cut between the the marathon runner and then him getting in the safe deposit box, and then you see him, he passes a Band-Aid box over to this mystery person, which we later find out is Doc, right? We didn't realize that at first, and later it's Doc. And then we have this the safe deposit box key. He, like, puts it in the fire on purpose. So I think it's probably just building up the mystery about what's in the safe deposit box. And so then later, the torture scene is half of the middle build. And the midpoint, basically, all the way to the ending payoff is this huge torture scene. And that's where we're getting to see that inciting crime that happened 30 years ago. Everything that he did in that torture scene is probably only a portion of what he did in Auschwitz, right? So I think making the torture scene as bad as it is, I see. which I think you, you said, Jari, that they actually had to cut some of it, right? There's something yeah. about that. Which oh, it was, there was yeah, a lot of it they cut. That. 
almost like telling the story in reverse in a way, like when we talk about progressive revelations. So I think this is where the story's layering and it's going progressive revelations of, we don't really know what the inciting crime is and we don't really understand what's going on. And then as the mystery builds and then things are revealed to the point where now we're in this really in-your-face, obvious torture scene, that is the inciting crime on screen, but just later. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, so that makes sense to me. We had talked about this before. Maybe it was just the way in the 70s they made film is different than now. Because even though Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy did some of the same stuff, and it, it you don't really know kind of what's going on till later, they set it up a little better where you can really kind of get into it. And maybe that's just different stylistically. So, yeah, that, that's that's actually a really good point. The second part of this is for the obligatory scenes is speech and praise of the villain. You know, a speech by a character or revelation that praises the cunning brilliance of the villain. There's multiple times this happened. The White Angel, who's played by Laurence Olivier, he's been on the run and in hiding for a long time. And so you sort of see that. But I know Anne had a, a little bit more detail on that. Well, I had just been having a conversation with a client, uh, an editing client, about the speech and praise of the villain. And she was concerned that, oh, I don't want that James Bond, the villain praises himself. And and I needed to really dig into what constitutes a speech and praise of the villain. And here in this movie, we have uh, Janeway, the William Devane character, driving Dustin Hoffman, babe, in in his sort of fake rescue attempt. And it's at one hour, 17 minutes, 30 seconds. He says he's probably the wealthiest and most wanted Nazi left alive. He goes on to say Zell saw the end early. So he's praising him for that. He snuck his brother and the diamonds out of Germany, and now they're here in New York, and he's coming after them. He's going to expose himself to incredible risk. And it's it's a good speech in praise of the villain because it describes this cold-blooded, devious, smart criminal. And Janeway is actually delivers the speech in an admiring tone, like he admires this guy. So I thought it was a very specific, clear speech and praise of the villain that wasn't the villain, wahaha, Mr. Bond, you know, praising himself. So I yeah. sort of passed this along to my client, too. It doesn't have to be that obvious, cheesy thing. Totally, yeah. And and I think that's probably the best example of it in the film that's said. I mean, there's lots of other little nuances about the history and stuff like that. So, okay, great. The third one is hero protagonist becomes a victim. A scene reveals that the villain makes his crimes personal to the hero, and the hero becomes a primary victim. Babe losing his brother, Doc, and now he is now the primary focus of the White Angel to figure out if Doc said anything about the diamonds. And as we've been talking about, there's a torture scene where Babe gets tortured, and it's you know exactly the same way this White Angel guy tortured his victims at Auschwitz. So you sort of see pretty pretty quickly you know how babe is now the focus of what's going on so that's a a pretty amazing well amazing in the sense that it they did have to cut it and it's kind of like the reservoir dog scene where i mean it's just it's brutal and it's probably way more brutal than it showed on the screen but still you 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 cringe a little bit when you're like ugh the next one is the hero at the mercy of the villain the core event of the thriller the all is lost moment when the the hero unleashes his or her gift. And this is the dentist scene when he's getting tortured. He keeps on saying, is it safe? Is it safe? Is it safe? And I kind of didn't understand that, but 
I know, Anne, you sort of had a... I thought it was pretty clear that he was referring to his stash of diamonds. Is it safe for him to go get it? Because he, for some reason, thinks that maybe Doc told Babe something about it before he died. But it also struck me as a very evil torture technique of asking a question that's impossible to answer until your victim just goes nuts. So the way Olivier delivers it is super creepy and hypnotic. According to some... It's in the top 50 or top 100 torture scenes <laughs> if they have this for that stuff. I think it was number 34. Need, yeah, 34. <laughs> like, yeah, we need a list of that shit. But the thing is, is that really where the, the hero uses his talent is when Babe escapes this murderous band, you know, Janway and everyone trying to kill him, he can run faster than all of them because he's been training for a marathon and he literally runs, he escapes. And then the false ending, the scene at the remote cabin, where he thinks he's going to get away and then the tide turns and then the next scene is him at the pump house which again i i was unsatisfied with there had it seems to me that babe well babe went has been through a lot so it's not like go through some more but it just didn't seem i don't know it didn't work as well as i thought it could so for whatever reason this didn't really grab me that quickly i mean the beginning is super random where the way <laughs> the way the the brother dies <laughs> when they're being chased kind of cheesy i guess to me and then the mood music's even better it's just like i don't know it's just crazy and then and then you got babe's backstory and his father that's not really flushed out as much although it, there's some going back and forth and then I didn't understand the whole love story thing at all. I, I, oh, I that mean, was maybe... easy to understand. That was, <laughs> that's, that is the stupid convention is exactly like in The Verdict, where yeah. the hero falls for a pretty woman uh, who, of course, has been set up to betray him to the enemy. Yeah. Then she repents too late and either dies or, or yeah. I mean, she dies in this case. I think in The Verdict she lived, but he rejects her. She's the femme fatale, and it's just it's a dis- Costing convention that needs to die. And it's not even done very well. I mean, the way because she, she's the courier. I mean, she's a courier for, for this whole racket of getting the diamonds. I mean, yeah, okay, you don't have much time in a movie to like set up the whole love thing. Like, come on. I mean, it didn't like, need to be there at all. And then this one drove me crazy because they get mugged in the park by two guys in suits. Okay, you don't get mugged in Central Park with guys in suits. <laughs> I mean, this is just ridiculous. I know why they did it, and I know that it's got to be like, oh, you know, but come, you're in suits, and the way they're getting beat up, it's like, ugh. Well, when I saw that part, when I saw that scene, the, to me, that was confirmation that Elsa was working for the other side, and I thought that she was then going to become a bigger character that her role was going to become more obvious. So I was surprised when it didn't. Yeah, but I mean <laughs> I mean they're both one's an old guy, one's a young guy, one's got a limp. They're in these nice pinstripe suits. <sighs> I don't Well, it was a message for Doc, right? That's the whole point of it. Doc yeah, got the message that they can get can, to his family. Yeah, but you could do that in a different way. I mean, and then yeah, he writes him a letter. Yeah. He writes, hey, Doc, hey, by the way, I got mugged in. I mean, he writes him a letter. It's like, come on. It's, it's, it well, he the writes seven, the letter to tell text. his brother. I he know. writes the letter to tell his brother about a woman he met because he's smitten. Yeah. And but, he says, oh, you know, oh, but, yeah, you were right. You didn't want me living in New York, big brother. You were right. I did eventually get mugged. 
right? So, I mean, that's sort of thrown in there as an offhanded comment of, okay, yeah, yeah, big brother, you were right. But really, let me tell you about this great woman I met. Okay. Okay. Well, let's move on to the (laughs) conventions for Thriller, and Kim is going to handle those for us. Okay, so we have four of them, which I feel like it wasn't very many. We've had a lot more conventions in other genres, so it was kind of interesting. Um, Number one is the MacGuffin. So this is the villain's object of desire, what he or she wants. And in this, it's Zell wants the diamonds from the safe deposit box. And then next is the investigative red herrings. So seemingly revelatory false clues that mislead the protagonist. In this, you know, we have these shapeshifters. We have Janeway and Elsa that are liars and they're working for the enemy. And so I was having trouble with that red herring. So I'm going to, I'll come back to it in just a second. Number three is making it personal. The villain takes the hero's fight as a personal affront and wants to not only beat the hero, but to make it painful for the hero as well. So, of course, Babe is tortured for information, and they assume that Doc told him before he died, information about the safety of retrieving the diamonds. And then number four is the clock. There is a limited time for the hero to act, and failing to act burns precious time. So at the end, Babe has to hurry to catch up with Zell before he leaves the country at 1 p.m. But I don't know that Babe necessarily knew about this clock, but the audience does. So my overall comment on these four conventions are that as I was watching for them, I wasn't actually able to identify any of the conventions until quite late in the story, which, again, you know, when Valerie broke down the the sections of the story, we know that, you know, there's that big midpoint shift that happens where Doc is killed and we really we switch protagonists at that point. And then everything really goes on, you know, goes active and goes very, very external. Really, the whole first half of the movie was kind of setting up a lot of things. And then we don't really start hitting a lot of those conventions until the second half of the movie. So I just thought it was interesting and, and seemed very different from other thrillers that we've watched. So when I was looking for red herrings, I wasn't really sure what investigation we were supposed to be following because we talked about how that initial crime isn't necessarily obvious. You know, it's kind of more of a coincidental accident. And it's kind of a lot of, of setup to go to to get to the second half. And so I wasn't really sure what I was supposed to be following. So I didn't know what I was really being tricked about. So in the end, really what I was able to find were those couple shapeshifters. And I was wondering if possibly this this mystery element of the whole first half and then things kind of being revealed at the midpoint and then really starting to come alive in that way. I was wondering if that was part of a political thriller. And I was trying to think if maybe if there were other political thrillers that we could assess to see if this was maybe a subgenre element. I was thinking maybe the Manchurian candidate would be one maybe to look at. Overall, the conventions felt weak because they're just not what I was used to. They were really subtle or really late in the story. And so, again, I'm not sure if that's a subgenre thing, if we're really just going off of the mystery aspect of the first half and then getting into more of the thriller aspect in the second half. There was a couple other little things maybe that could have counted as red herrings. We have the guy with kind of that glassy eye and the there was that bomb in Chen. the... Oh, yeah. yeah. And there was a bomb in the pram kind of all in the beginning hook. And later, Doc asked Zell, did Chen act alone? And so we're not really sure, like, if people were after him from the very beginning. So there was some of that, but it kind of gets lost a little bit. And then the last thing was the clock aspect. It felt kind of weak to me because it didn't really feel like life and death in the end when the clock hits it's very close to the end and we know that zell is going to be leaving the country you know so he's only going to know where zell is at a certain time when he's trying to you know he's going to be at 58 in broadway or wherever he is so if he wants to catch him he has to get there right away so he can you know all that thing 
But again, because it's the hero chasing the villain and the villain is after diamonds, to compare it to Silence of the Lambs, Starling has to try to catch Buffalo Bill before the victim loses her life and loses her life in a, in a horrific way. And we talked about damnation. So I was trying to really understand the damnation level here and really kind of like, what is at stake for Babe and the clock? And, you know, is this really a life or death? Or is it, as Anne pointed out, really about justice and tyranny? And we can't let this horrible war criminal get away scot-free with his diamonds, which again feels more like justice. So the clock aspect would work if it was about justice, but since we were like, that's a thriller, it's about life and death and damnation, and and maybe it is damnation if you let someone as awful as the White Angel get away with things. But anyway, just trying to look at it in terms of the thriller genre, it was just a little bit different, which you know again, may be part of a political thriller innovation One of the things that I want to focus on or just maybe bookmark is that we have the conventions, but maybe they don't necessarily need to take place at a particular time. And I think even some of the obligatory scenes can come out of the traditional order that we think of. So we do need a ticking clock, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't necessarily have to be the whole time. And I think even though babe doesn't know about the one o'clock deadline he does know that if zell gets the diamonds and disappears that's it there will be no catching him he'll be obviously the richest man in the world with a horde of diamonds like that mm-hmm. in terms of the you know is the value shift along justice injustice or is it life and death i see it differently i see mm-hmm. that Tom survives. And so, you know, in that he does preserve life. We do move in that direction. And the core event for a thriller is the hero at the mercy of the villain scene versus the exposure of the criminal for a crime story. And so to me, Zell is exposed in the street, but it's not a result of Babe's actions. Babe certainly is at the mercy of the villain more than once. And so those are the big events when it's Zell versus Babe. So that to me is like, is what's really driving it. And it's not executed as well as we might like to see, but I still think that it has the elements of a thriller. Just maybe part of it is I'm really curious about how the novel is different from the book, because I think Mm -hmm. there are a lot of things that are explained in the book and scenes Mm -hmm. that were cut. So I think that, you know, again, those key personnel changes and the story not having the continuing thread or the story spine being respected, I think Mm -hmm. definitely and I think this is interesting when we when we come at it from an editorial standpoint. The, the genre is the sum of its parts, right? Like it's not just one element. So the fact that we have a thriller with a with a high maybe sense of justice is okay. It doesn't make it not a thriller because we definitely have the hero at the mercy of the villain scene is so intense that that definitely feels the essence of thriller, right? That is combining the horror aspect and, you know what I mean, and all of those pieces. So if you were, you know, to look at your own story or your client's story about innovation is how can you take the overall elements that make the genre, the obligatory scenes, the conventions, the values at stake, that essential emotion 
what's that the word? core emotion core emotion yeah the core emotion <laughs> the core event really looking at all aspects of the genre and how you are playing them in your story and looking at places where you can really amp our hero at the mercy of the villain scene like to come at it from you know your story grid mind what you can innovate and what you can play with and put at different levels to still make the overall story in your genre and and work i like that we have that control again it's form and not formula so thank you for that leslie that's very helpful Okay, so let's shift to point of view and narrative device. Anne, you're going to talk us through that. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. The The point of view, and I have no idea how this works in the novel, but it takes a more or less omniscient point of view, but it shifts from limited to Doc at the beginning, almost limited to Doc at the beginning because we're in his head, we're following him. Mm-hmm. But we switch back and forth between Doc and, and Babe, who's out running in New York City, and Doc is in Paris. I think Babe's point of view is the hero is the most prominent throughout, throughout the bulk of the movie, especially after Doc dies. But it's typical, it's kind of got these far-flung elements that's, that are typical of a spy story where you have somebody in one country and somebody in another country. So the camera or the point of view follows each person as needed. We see... Doc in Paris, we see Babe in New York, we see Zell in Uruguay and then coming into New York. The scene of when Doc is first attacked in Paris, um, we even see that scene through the eyes of a random stranger across the street. So uh, a number of the scenes felt had this sort of long lens, spy-like quality to them, which was another thing that made me kind of focus in on the crime espionage aspect of the point of view of the narrative device. I think it had a feel like somebody was letting me in on secrets, you know, throughout where with the use of all three types of narrative drive. So it was really interesting. Okay, so you're going to tell us about the objects of desire as well. What do you think about those? Well, I think that the protagonist wants and needs, and I'm going to talk about Babe here because I didn't even consider Doc as the protagonist of the first half, which he kind of is. But Babe, I believe he wants to get to the bottom of his brother's life and death after the midpoint. And Zell wants to recover his diamonds. And then on the needs side, Babe needs to prove his strength and determination, his, you know, that going, 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 running thing that we see over and over again. And I don't know what Zell needs. I I was kind of thinking maybe he's sort of making up for his Nazi past because he's helping turn in other Nazis, but mostly he just wanted his diamonds and he needed his diamonds and he's a monster. Yeah. He's he's a certified 100% monster a-hole. I mean, that guy is in it for himself. Like yeah, absolutely. Tell. Yeah, so he needs he needs to be put down for justice, right? Like, <laughs> he needs to be put down in the veterinary, <laughs> the veterinarian sort of way. <laughs> there is no, yeah, he. There needs to be a special place in hell for him. Well, yeah, not, played really well by Lawrence Olivier. He did a great job. Yes, he did. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so then the controlling idea theme comes out of that. Just the general thriller controlling ideas, life is preserved when the protagonist unleashes his or her special gift, or conversely, death or damnation triumph when the protagonist fails to unleash his or her mm-hmm. special gift. In this particular political thriller, um, seems more about justice and injustice, as we've been discussing. So it's tempting 
to say justice prevails, and it's okay to talk about the crime element of a thriller, justice prevails when a determined protagonist outruns, haha, outwits, and outlasts nice. a devious criminal antagonist. I was thinking, as you guys were mentioning, the objects of desire, there's that specific line that Dustin Hoffman's character says about being a marathon runner. His job is to ignore pain, right, and just keep going. Um, And then at the end, there's that moment when he's at the house with Elsa and he knows that Zell's men are coming. And he puts that last little bit of, I don't know, ambisol. I'm not sure what we're calling it, on his tooth, you know? Clove oil. Um, Yeah. Clove oil, not ambisol. Sorry, I I don't know that down and he breaks mm-hmm. it because he's not going to try to numb anything anymore he's going to he's going to endure because that's what he does you know so i think thematically that was kind of one of those moments and then you know at the end that's when he goes one-on-one with zell he's going to withstand and he's going to laugh so i really loved your theme and i love the outruns outwits and outlasts the other thing about him being a marathon runner you know marathon runners go the distance they they commit they see things through and they play hurt. They run hurt. That's sort of all part and parcel of the training. And they have incredible amounts of internal strength and fortitude. And I think we see that in Babe. You know, the whole torture scene was just brutal. And, you know, he, he gets out of that and he runs. He's an incredible amount of pain. But what does he do? He runs because that's what he's been trained to do. And he can run through the pain and he can perform through the pain. I didn't understand the context of how the people across the street from Babe's house were calling him creepy. They tease him a lot, and they're calling him creepy and all kinds of stuff, and they razz him every time he comes home. So could you kind of go into what your thoughts were about that? Yeah, I mean, running today is pretty commonplace. There's lots of runners, and it's a it's big industry. But in the 70s, nobody ran. You are a real oddball to go out and run for fun, and all, all this guy does is run. He's got a great big stopwatch tied around his waist, hanging down his pants, right? And he is constantly checking his time and recording his time. Now, my running group once is trying to convince me to do a marathon. I'm going to get them to watch this movie first and see <laughs> what they have to say about it. Because as a runner, we're constantly recording our time and looking at our time and tweaking you know, nutrition and all that kind of stuff to get a little bit more. But it's totally normal now. In the 70s, right. that was so our was real that, nut job to be doing that. Was that what that opening sequence was about where that kind of big dude, you know, passes him and flips him off that specific portion didn't hold up over time because i was having a hard time understanding the guy in the white tank and shorts to me he was just out for a run he sees this guy with a great big stopwatch and he says you know are you running late because it's weird none of the other runners that we saw were timing themselves they were running but they weren't timing themselves as obsessively as babe was so Babe saw that as competition and had to outrun him, right? And the guy's like, you know, you tool, you know, just go away. <laughs> the big guy in white was Treat Williams. Oh. In his, like, one of his first movie appearances. I thought that was okay. interesting. Okay, yeah. interesting. So to tie together the running with the guys who were calling him creep and the, the people who were just kind of disrespecting Babe with a nickname like that, I guess it's not hard to imagine that you might get a little razzing. But regardless, to me, there's a thing in stories, right, where the hero or the protagonist, they have their regular shtick, right? Their regular way of dealing with life. And for Babe, that's it seems to be running. But he has to, in some way, change 
the way he approaches things if he's going to be successful. And so to me, the change that he makes that essentially augments his, his ability to run because he's trained a lot is that he starts speaking up and standing up. And we so we see that in the beginning when he's with his professor and he doesn't speak up. And we see it with the guys across the street who are like, you're creepy and they're picking on him and he doesn't stand up to them. And so, and, you know, we see at the end in the pump house when, I believe that's where it is, when Zell says, your dad was weak, your brother was weak, each in their own way, and you're weak in your own way too. And instead of running he stands up to him he speaks up he says no you're gonna do this the marathon man stops running right yeah yeah he's an avoider he runs from things yeah i would add that to part of the controlling idea because i think that is the way that he expresses his gift Okay, so good examples or other discussion points. Anne, you have a point that you wanted to mention. Well, I just wanted to call out that the conversation over a meal scene is one that we actually studied in our editor training. And I think Valerie has some more things to say about the excellent use of a conversation over a meal scene. Yeah, now that I've seen the whole film a couple of times, I can really appreciate why Sean brought that restaurant scene to our attention there's a bunch of reasons and i'm sure you know if i watch the film again i'll get a bunch more reasons but first of all if you just listen to the dialogue it sounds very innocent but the whole scene is about subtext doc has an agenda he's he's trying to vet the girlfriend of his little brother babe has an agenda he's looking for his big brother's approval and in fact although we don't know it in the scene when it's happening elsa also has an agenda of her own because she's working for Zell. And so she's trying to keep her identity hidden and keep from being found out. It's a great example of how a scene that seemingly only has to do with the subplot or the love story can actually drive the global story. So when we talk about obligatory scenes and conventions, if you can get one scene doing double duty and addressing the main plot and the subplot or the internal genre and the external genre at the same time, that's when you're really cooking. Finally, the scene uses exposition as ammunition, and it has both kinds of turning points. The scene actively turns with Doc, because he's actively setting Elsa up, right, to reveal, to to bring out the revelatory turning point, which is that she's German. So every line of dialogue, every action in this film is serving multiple purposes, and we really get a great example of that in the uh, restaurant scene. Awesome. Thank you. So, Anne, you had a couple of other points you wanted to make about the story. Well, one the, one thing that interested me was that the, the um, inspiration that Babe uses in his running is, and we see it repeated several times, is film footage of uh, there's an Ethiopian Olympic uh, marathoner named Abebe Bikila, who famously ran barefoot. And I think it's interesting mm-hmm. that I believe when Babe Dustin Hoffman escapes, uh, he's also running barefoot. He's in his right. pajamas or something, basically. Um, and one other thing that I just wanted to call out that I that made the movie less for me is the scene where Janeway is driving like a crazy man with Dustin Hoffman in the back seat. He's explaining, like praising the villain, explaining the whole uh, whole plot to Dustin Hoffman. 
And it just, it was surprisingly awkward. I felt that it was, it was almost comic in its effect, that he's driving like this and nobody can drive like that. And the obvious fakery of the driving was, it was like Keystone it, it came across as almost a parody of, and I've yeah. seen that, that scene parodied uh, in comedy. There were problems for sure, not not just story grid related. And and there's a quote from Roger Ebert's review that I thought was was apt. If holes in plot bother you, Marathon Man will be maddening. But as well-crafted escapist entertainment as a diabolical thriller, the movie works with relentless skill. You know, we might argue that point. But there were plot holes, things that pulled me out of the story. Some of that is that, you know, I no longer have a 1970s sensibility about things. So there were some odd things that we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't see today necessarily. But there were some really entertaining aspects to the story. And then, you know, again, I just want to mention this idea that changing key personnel and not maintaining the story spine is the thing that that Sean talks about, about a dog's dinner, you know, when you're not staying true to the global genre and putting that first and primary, then that can create problems for the story and, and the audience or the reader's experience. So I think that wraps it up for this week. Great discussion, everyone. Thank you, Anne, Jari, Kim, and Valerie for excellent editorial insights into Marathon Man. We hope our discussion deepens your understanding of the thriller genre and story in general and helps you learn to tell a story that works. Links to the Foolscap and other materials will be in the show notes, and we'd love for you to comment, argue with us on our interpretations, and generally keep this conversation going. You can do that by contacting us on Twitter at StoryGridRT. Join us again next time when we'll be taking on the Western with the 1968 version of True Grit. Why not give it a look during the week? and follow along with us. Thanks for joining us. See you next week.